Well, great to see you this morning, church. So glad you're here. If you're joining online, I want to say welcome to you as well. And when I uh, came through the doors today, I've been seeing faces I haven't seen for a while. Some just because they're re-engaging. Some because they're like the swallows from Capistrano, right? They're, they're returning home from the south. And, and so for whatever reason you're here today, I'm really glad you're here. So do me a favor. Look at somebody near you and say, it's so good to see you again. Do that, would you? It's so good to see you again. If you're married to that person, that's going to feel weird. But anyway, glad you're here this morning. I'm excited. We're in Holy Week. The children coming through, waving the palm branches. And it was kind of a joke that Sean shared. But it's actually something serious one of the kids said a couple of weeks ago. They thought palm, this is what it meant. Palm Sunday, what's it got to do with your hand? But anyway, it's got something to do with the palms. And Holy Week is a, is a, it's a transitional time to the cross. We call it Holy Week. Jesus enters in on Palm Sunday to the cheers and the cries of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Monday he goes in and teaches in Jerusalem. Daily he would pull away from Jerusalem at night. But he'd go into Jerusalem. It's the day, if you remember him cursing the fig tree, that happened on a Monday. As he goes in on Tuesday, he teaches... In fact, we see some of the greatest teaching of Jesus that we have written happen on that Tuesday. The Mount of Olives Discourse found in chapter 24, 25, it's the most complete teaching on the end times that Jesus does, the fullest one, he does on that Tuesday. Wednesday, we don't know too much of what happened. We know he was active, we know he was involved, and yet we don't know scripturally all the things that took place on Wednesday, but as he came to Thursday, Thursday would have been the evening meal, the celebration of the Passover. John 13, which is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, would have happened on that Thursday. We know that as Thursday progressed, Judas went out from among them, betraying, leading the soldiers and the leaders of the synagogue to to Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Interesting that when you leave Jerusalem, if you, if you go east, you go down into the Kidron Valley that John talks about that Jesus walked across the Kidron Valley. There would have been at that time now not only a stream, but on the Temple Mount as sacrifices were taking place, the blood would, of the lambs would funnel down into the Kidron Valley, be carried away by the stream. And so, as Jesus walked across the stream that would have been filled with bloody water, as he thought to himself, he knew next day he was going to be on the cross. He goes up the eastern, would be the western slope, but on the up east onto the Mount of Olives, where we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Out of the Garden of Gethsemane, we know that Jesus would have been turned over or arrested late Thursday night. Interesting because I talked about it last week. I gave you that visual to understand that Jesus would have been on the slope on the eastern side of Jerusalem looking down over the valley so as the 600 Roman soldiers along with temple police and Sanhedrin were coming to to arrest Jesus and they had torches. We don't know how many torches they had, but they had plenty of torches in order to see because it was dark. Jesus could have easily seen the funnel of the torches coming up 
the Mount of Olives. Within 24 hours, Jesus will have been betrayed. He will have been beaten. He will have been unfairly accused. He will have had two unfair trials. He would be beaten and scourged within just an inch of his life. He would be hanged on a cross where it's said historically that the Romans invented the cross as a means of punishment, not so much to die of pain, but to die of shame. They wanted to make sure that anyone who would see someone put on the cross, that the crowd would never do anything to rebel against the Romans. When a person dies on the cross, they, they don't die from, well, they die from suffocation, but it's not because they can't breathe in. It's that in order to breathe out, they have to stand up. And so they break the legs, or simply by exhaustion, or simply because of pain, a person can no longer push themselves up on the cross, meaning they can't exhale and they suffocate. And by Friday, the cheers of Hosanna turn to the jeers of crucify him and Christ will be laid in a tomb. Unless he doesn't. What if he hadn't? I mean, Jesus knew this was all coming. He could have pretty easily bypassed this. As early as the temptation from the enemy when he was in the wilderness after his baptism, he could have bypassed the cross. The enemy offered to glorify him without the cross. He, throughout his life, kept talking about the fact that he was going to die, that he was going to raise again, but he was going to die. He could have simply not gone to Jerusalem. He could have just stayed in the, in the area of Galilee. That's plenty far away. I mean, there's a Roman presence there, but they wouldn't have had the Sanhedrin there. He wouldn't have been in the heat of the festival. He could have avoided it. He could have, he could have just simply... What's interesting to me when I talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, he prays, God, please take this cup from me. He didn't want to go through this. And when he saw the torches coming up the side... The reason I emphasize it's the Mount of Olives is because it was a mount. It wasn't a mountain, but it was a mount. For around here, it'd be a mountain. We'd make a ski resort out of it, right? All he had to do was slip over the eastern side. He could have gone right down into Bethany. He could have kept on going. I mean, it would have been easy enough for Jesus to bypass the cross. And in case you're thinking he didn't have a choice, he did have a choice. Hebrews chapter 5 says that, that the son, even though he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, meaning what? Now, you could argue that whole thing on obedience. Jesus wasn't obedient. No, it's just that up until this time, we keep talking about how Jesus loved us enough to go to the cross, but love that doesn't have a choice isn't love. And so we see full well that he submitted himself to the Father's will. He surrendered himself, not my will, but your will be done. But what if, what if Jesus hadn't gone to the cross? Big deal. God still loves us, right? Why is it necessary for Christ to go to the cross? Now that is a huge conversation that my temptation would be to try to do far too much, but I want to take you to a very profound passage in Colossians chapter 2 that outlines 
as horrific as the cross was, three wonderful things that actually resulted from the cross. Colossians chapter 2, this is Paul writing to the church of Colossae, but he is speaking to all believers. And he says, when you were dead, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Say that with me. I love that phrase. He forgave us all our sins. Emphasis on the all. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now this is a wonderful passage. It's one of my favorite New Testament passages because it is so rich in, in pictures and understanding. But what's interesting when you read this, I was looking through this, this last week and this kind of jumped out to me, that there are three things that were accomplished when Jesus went to the cross. The first one is just simply forgiveness. Say that with me, would you? Forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a simple word we use all the time. The word means he paid our debt for us. Um, in fact, if I am going to forgive someone, it means that they owe me something. I am releasing the debt. So technically, that's what it means. But he paid a debt for us we couldn't pay for ourselves. There's an old hymn of faith. Some of you will know. He, uh, we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Uh, he paid a debt we couldn't pay. We needed someone to wash our sins away. It, it, Jesus paid the debt that he could be the only one to pay because we couldn't pay it for ourselves. And it's this incredible thing when he says he forgave us all our sins, which the emphasis in that passage is not just some sins, not even just the sins you know about. It's he forgave everything in our lives. Now, Scripture uses lots of words to try to describe this incredibly huge concept. So when you're reading through Scripture, it isn't that Scripture is changing its view. It's helping you see another aspect of how God forgave us. And there are three words that jump out to me from Scripture. The first one is the word ransom. Ransom. When Jesus died on the cross, he was a ransom for our sins. Now, I almost don't even have to explain to you what the word ransom means. Because it's, it's not hardly a week goes by. We don't hear about a kidnapping take place. Somebody demands a ransom. The word ransom means that he bought us out of captivity. He bought us out of captivity. That's what the word ransom means. So if somebody were to... Um, kidnap one of my children. What would I not give to get my children back? And so I would, what, probably sell my house, certainly mortgage my house. I would sell everything that I had that had any value. I would sell my pickup truck. I have got a couple of old four-wheelers. I'd sell the four-wheelers. Some of you know I like to hunt. I'd sell anything I had. If I had anything that owed me anything, I would collect on it, and I would pay that ransom up to about whatever. But what if they told me the ransom is $5 billion? I'm just going to take a guess. I'm guessing nobody here 
could afford $5 billion. In fact, if you can, I want to talk to you privately after the service. <laughs> you can afford $5 billion. How about $100 billion? How about $2 trillion? How about $500 trillion? Here's the deal. Scripture says the debt is so high for our sin, we could never pay it. The ransom is so high. But what he did is he died as the ransom. He paid the payment so that I could be out of captivity. He uses another word. He, he uses the word redeemed. And I give you all the scriptures that kind of show you this. The word redeemed means to buy something back that I lost possession of. Um, if I go to the hawk shop and I turn something in there for a few hundred bucks, when I go and redeem from the hawk shop, I pay them what I owe them plus a little bit of interest or a lot of interest, and I get out of there what used to belong to me that is out of my possession, is now in my possession. When Jesus died for our sins, we were out of God's possession. We're now back into God's possession Why he redeemed us. And then there's the word atonement. Atonement just means he paid a price for us to bring a relationship. But I like the way I learned it in my basic theology class when I was going to college. The word atonement just means at one meant. It just means that I am now at one with God because of what Christ did for me on the cross that when I was dead in my sins, Jesus died, forgave all my sins. He redeemed me. He rescued me. He ransomed me. And He brought me into relationship with God. He forgave me. Had He not died on the cross, I couldn't have paid that debt myself. A number of years ago, there was a missionary who was here preaching. Guy's name was Earl Rifle. Earl Rifle. Earl was, uh, at that time, probably in his late 50s, had been a career missionary uh, in Sierra Leone, West Africa. He worked primarily among the Yulunkan people, and he had grown up there. His mom and dad had been career missionaries there. Uh, Art and, I can't remember her name, I think it was Gladys. Art and Gladys Rifle, they were career missionaries. Their family had spent two generations investing in this group of people, this tribe tribal people in Sierra Leone. In fact, a number of years ago, there was actually some of the atrocities that were being happening were happening in Sierra Leone, were happening to the Yolunkan people. Um, the Yolunkan people didn't have the Bible in their language, and they had kind of their own specific language, and so the rifles worked on trying to help build the bridge so they could explain Scripture. Can you imagine trying to tell the gospel without ever being able to anybody having a Bible, and so they needed to translate the Bible into the language of the Yolunkans so that they could share the good news of Jesus Christ. Art, if you remember him, he was just this little twig of a guy about this tall. I remember him wearing a full suit, and he was wearing tennis shoes, man. I mean, that was before it was popular, and uh, he was just up here going at it, and he had all kinds of energy, and, and he began to share a story that was really interesting. I've never forgotten it that when they were trying to translate the Bible, they were trying to explain to the Yolunkan people what the word redeemed meant because it's a very clear scriptural principle, but it's also a word used. And they, there was no word for the Yolunkans for redeem. How do you explain the word redeem? 
And so they explain theologically with a lot of words what it means to redeem something. And they were told, oh, use this phrase. And the phrase translated, pull my head. Yeah, just like I said it. Pull my head. That is the word in Ulunkin for redeem. He said, I don't understand. He goes, that's the word. That's the word. Pull my head. Pull my head. That's the word for redeem. He said, you're going to have to explain it to me. He said, well, our people were some of the most fiercely and oppressed group during the slave trades, 17, 1800s. And so what would happen is since we're on the interior of West Africa, tribes from the, uh, the, the coastal line would be hired by whites to come in and to make us captive. And so they would come in and they would abduct us and they would put us together and then they would put us in chains and we would walk on death marches to the coastal line where we would get on the slave ships and if we survived, wherever we ended up, that's where we would end up. Unless a family could come up with the means to pay for your freedom. Anytime a person's freedom was purchased, they would go to the line foreman, they would pay him the price, they would come over and they would unshackle the shackle that was around our necks, and a person who was freed, we, we called it, they pulled our head. A person who was in slavery, rescued from slavery, paid for by family, their heads were pulled. And so the rejoicing would be, I've pulled my head, they pulled my head, they pulled my head. Well, Christ died on the cross. Scripture says we're in slavery. We're in captivity. And because of Christ, we're free. Unless, of course, he didn't die. There's a second concept that comes out of this passage and it's just simply the word grace. Say that with me, would you? Grace. Now, we've heard grace many times. It means that he took our accusation. Now, look what it says in this passage. He says, he forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away nailing it to the cross. Now, now that, what is he talking about here? Well, the, the written code, Paul is referring back to the, the Old Testament law. And he said the Old Testament law was the written code. And when Jesus died on the cross, he forgave all of our sins. He paid the debt for us. But he also canceled. That word canceled means to... Um, it means to wipe out something completely so that there is no residue remaining. It's an incredible word, but we don't have time to explore that today. But it means that he took it and he erased it completely. And then he took the law and he took it and he nailed it to the cross. Why? Because he said that the Old Testament law stood opposed to us. It accused us. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
I mean, the, the law was given by God. So how can he say that it accused us? Well, I, have any of you, do you remember when you were, have you ever had a child do this to you? Or have you ever done this as a child? Have you ever looked at someone and just simply done this? Nah, 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 nah. Any of you ever do that? First hour, I had all kinds of people who were honest about that. Uh, there is a different translation, neener, neener, neener. It was this idea, right? When you thumb your nose at someone, what you're saying is you can't touch me, you can't, or whatever they want to put in there. Whatever it is, we're making fun of you because you can't touch us. And the concept of the law is not that the law is bad. Paul says, well, no, no, no. He says the law is good if you use it appropriately. First Timothy. In fact, he says that the law shows us how deeply we need to be forgiven. See, the problem with the law is the law can't be lived up to in your own strength. You're going to fall short. In fact, he says it this way. I'm going to give this to you. You can go home and study it a little deeper. But in Galatians chapter 3, the whole theme of Galatians is that we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. Not the things we can do. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 says this. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Well, absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness could have certainly come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So what he says is, this idea is that the law was standing there kind of, oh, I don't want to say it quite this way, but I can't think of a better way, basically going, na, 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 you can't touch me, you cannot possibly do all this in your own strength. But when Christ went to the cross, he took all that rules and regulations, he took all that stuff that stood opposed to us and accused us, he took it away, and Scripture says he nailed it to the cross. By the way, Scripture says that now in Christ, there are no longer any accusations. That in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. That in Christ, there is no longer any separation in Christ. In fact, Scripture says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the only one who accuses you is the devil himself. Revelation chapter 12. He is called the accuser of the brethren. Now, my question is this. What is it in your life that the enemy keeps accusing you of from your past? Because in Christ, that's expunged. That's wiped out. He forgave all our sins. He let the debt go and paid it for us. In Christ, we have grace, the gift of God. 
There's no longer any accusation against us. Let me give you the third thing that happened on the cross. Authority. Say that with me, would you? Authority. It means he bought our victory. Look what it says in this passage. It says that he took away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities. Now, the powers and the authorities that Paul is talking about, he mentions them a number of times in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, he says it this way, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So Paul says, having disarmed the forces of evil, Satan, sin and the spiritual forces, having disarmed them, it says he made a public spectacle of them, triumph over them by the cross. When I saw this this week, that passage just exploded for me because Christ didn't just die to pay for our sins and Christ didn't just die so that I could have grace, but Christ died so that I can live in victory. It says, it says that he triumphed over them. Hebrews chapter 2 says that by his death on the cross, he destroyed the power of the one who holds us captive by our fear of death. That is the devil. So here's the deal. Imagine you're in warfare and your enemy is shooting blanks. Paul says they're shooting blanks. It's not that they're not coming against you. It's not that Satan isn't trying to destroy. But understand, in Christ, in the end, we win. The victory is already paid for. The victory is already sure. I have a dear pastoral friend, Alex Crittendom, who just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things I remember so much about Alex is he would often say this, in the end, we win. <laughs> in the end, we win. Look at somebody near you and say that phrase with me. In the end, we win. Say it, would you? In the end, we win. Victory is assured, and victory is assured not because of what we've done but because Christ went to the cross had Christ not gone to the cross we still would be carrying our own debt a debt we couldn't afford had Christ not gone to the cross we still would have this accusation showing us how far short we fall and if you don't know you fall short that's one of the greatest shortnesses we have. Scripture says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a single person here and most of all me who could never stand and ever proclaim that I'm good enough for heaven. But I am through grace. I am because of the cross. I am because of forgiveness. And I know I don't always walk in this authority, but Christ is my victor. He bought the victory. When we sing victory in Jesus, I know it's a song we don't sing a whole lot anymore, but when we sing that old song, victory in Jesus, that's what it means. It means that, yes, my sins are forgiven, but my sins aren't just forgiven so I can be the same lousy person. But my sins are forgiven so that I can be right before God. God took him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. But he bought my victory so that I could actually live like I'm in victory. The horrible cross 
is a wonderful cross when you understand what happened there. And he wouldn't have had to. I had a person last week who caught me and said, why the cross? Why the cross? Because on the cross, Jesus did something for me I could never do for myself. That's why for believers, the cross, the cross is horrible, but it's, it's beautiful. Because it, it emulates what God did for us. This morning I was, uh, I was looking online a little bit and I was reading some articles and I came across an article that I don't remember it. I don't remember hearing it happen. It happened in Michigan, November 13th. I probably know why. November 13th, good chance I was in a deer stand somewhere. But November 13th, there was a, a plane crash up off of Beaver Island, off of Charlevoix in Michigan. There was a father and a daughter who were passengers on the plane. His name is Mike Perdue. His, his uh, daughter's name is Lainey. Lainey is 11 years old. They don't exactly know what happened, but they know the plane encountered problems as they were um, getting ready to land. Everybody but Lainey died. When Lainey came to in the hospital, they began to question her about what had happened. By the way, Lainey had a few injuries, but had no injuries on this side of her body. But she had a broken arm, a couple of broken bones. And they asked her what happened. She said, all I know is everybody was panicking and everybody was screaming and she said the last thing I remember is my dad turned over to me and gave me the biggest bear hug I've ever had in my life and he never let go investigators have determined that Mike hugged his daughter and saved her life by simply holding on and not letting go. She's the only one who survived. Over 2,000 years ago, Christ was walking toward the cross. It says that as he came into the holy city, he went up on a mountainside and wept, wept over Jerusalem. And said, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd have only known this day what could bring you peace. By the end of the week, Jesus embraced humanity. God hugged us. Took the pain. So as Paul says, we can be made alive. The horrible, wonderful 
cross. Father, I'm, I'm always so humbled when I think of the cross. I, I know that my tendency and probably our tendency is to rush right by Friday, rush right by Thursday, because we live knowing the rest of the story. We, we live in the reality of the resurrection, and frankly, we should. We know the end. And so today, for those that are here that would say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Lord, once again, I want to say thank you and want you to know that I am not going to depend on what I can do for myself. I, I cling to the old rugged cross as the old hymn goes. And for those that are here that the enemy keeps accusing them of their past, well, Jesus, you paid so that we don't have to live there. And maybe the one who's here today who's very favorable towards you, they, they like being in church, they feel good about being in church, but maybe he didn't quite understand why we were all here or why the big deal about the cross Today, you've seen a vision of what God did for you. Not because He hates you. It's because He loves you. He's embraced you and He won't let go if you trust in Him. This week, help us to walk in that reality, to walk in our freedom, to walk in our authority. To walk without any accusation knowing what you've paid for through the cross. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.